You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Katie Conway, Chief People Officer at RGP. Katie spent 25 years working in HR with a heavy focus on talent acquisition, talent management, employee relations, analytics, and employee experience. She's worked in both public and privately held organizations in higher education, consumer goods, consulting, and manufacturing. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Katie discuss how to create a sense of community and belonging for gig-driven employees, how to find the best fit talent based on DNA traits, both for their team and for clients, and what that means, a DNA trait, and the meaning of agile talent, and the three key drivers of employee retention, according to RGP. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett, and today I'm very excited to have Katie Conway with us. Katie, how are you? I'm well, thank you. So you're out of Atlanta. I am out of Atlanta. We were just saying, I kind of, I had my heart broken by Justin Bieber. I used to do his private security when he was just a young buck in Canada. And then he moved to Atlanta and picked new bodyguards, which I think I was, I was, I was heartbroken. I felt like I could have out bodyguarded the new bodyguards, but you know, it is what it is. You'd someone, sometimes you get your heart broken. You're probably not the first heart broken by Justin Bieber. True. That's, that's a good point. There was very worse heartbreaks, right? Yeah. Um, So chief people officer, at RGP. Tell us about that. Tell us RGP. We've done a quick introduction, but just for those that may not know that company. Sure. Happy to. So RGP is a next-gen human capital firm that we help clients uh, match the right professional talent needed to tackle their change and transformation initiatives. And we really focus on something we call the now of work, which is attracting the best talent uh, in an increasingly fluid gig-oriented environment. Wow. And so I'm excited to dive into some of that because I think that those are headline topics. And I think there's a lot of companies trying to figure that out today. But but let's go to you for a second. What was your, did you have an aha moment that got you into this space? I mean, obviously, as chief people officer, you have to be pretty passionate about people and culture. Were, were you always that way? Or was this one conversation, a bad experience? What happened that, that, that sent you on this path? Sure. Uh, I've always been attracted to working in a in a pretty social or people environment. So my background is that I started off working for my alma mater in higher ed, really just in the admissions, the, the recruiting um, area of that uh, institution, and quickly wanted to move into a business path. So a natural sidestep for me was into human resources. And I've always spent my time in talent, recruiting, um, HR areas of the business. No, oh, excellent. So let's let's dive into it. So how do companies today, from your experience, how do companies, how do we create this sense of community and belonging with gig-driven employees? And I, I find this interesting. And I'll go back to a, um, I wrote an article on LinkedIn when I sold my first business, the private security company, uh, the physical guarding company in 2017. In 2018, I took my family to Laguna Beach. And we were down there and I, we didn't have Uber. We, we literally just got Uber where I am in Halifax, Nova Scotia in the last, I don't know, six months or something like that. So back then there was no Uber. We had, we had taxis. And so we're down there and they have Uber and I don't see any taxis anymore. So I was like, wow, that's really decimated the, the taxi industry. That was one kind of interesting observation. But I saw a lot of Uber drivers that had Lyft and Uber. And so I would ask 
Uber drivers, like, tell me about this. You know, why, why are why are you driving for Uber and Lyft? And most of the responses back then in 2018 were Uber has the majority of the calls. They get the calls. And, and I said, well, if they get the calls, I would interrupt and say, well, why, why, why Lyft then? They said, well, because Lyft allows us to get tips and Lyft allows us to talk to a human being. And so we like Lyft better. They Lyft had done a better job of creating community with them. Uber, uh, and, I, and I talked about this in saying in the article was, don't forget all the stakeholders. I think Uber missed the mark back then. I think the business has you know, evolved, but in that moment, they missed one key stakeholder, which was the driver. They really focused on the customer. And Lyft seemed, seemed to see an opportunity in the lack of community with gig workers. And so, and I'm curious, because there's so much of this now. And, I, and I, we had the director of HR on from uh, Instacart. And I asked the question, they said, we haven't figured it out yet. Maybe they should be a customer of yours, because I'm curious <laughs> as we go down this path. But how do you take your values and implement them, not just your yeah, yeah, yeah. Your core values, your culture to gig workers and screen and onboard and because they're gig workers. So this is fascinating and great, great topic to discuss. So over to you. How do we do it? Because there's so much of it. There's so much of it. I mean, it's interesting, Ron, you know, in 2020, 35% of the U.S. workforce did some portion of gig work. And by 2027, that's going to be 50%. So figuring this out is a big deal, right? It's it's not going away. Um for us, it's really been constant, always about uh, branding our culture. So, you know, with this attraction of people wanting to work with a little bit more autonomy, flexibility, control over who they work for, when they work for them, what they're doing, um, it, the, the next equation, the, the first generation of that, in my opinion, was really offering that ability, that autonomy, flexibility, control. The, the next iteration of that, as more people migrate to that, particularly high-skilled workers, is um, why us? Why this company, right? And so it goes back to the branding of culture. What do you have to offer? What differentiates you in the marketplace um, that's going to attract people? And, and I'll say for RGP, you know, um, what we've really tried to put in place, we are fortunate in that we've had a very unique and special culture since our inception. But our guiding star right now, I'm a big fan of Josh Burson's work, is really this concept of the irresistible organization. And so thinking about that in the construct of culture is, you know, how do you create meaningful work, hands-on management, a productive environment, growth opportunity, trust and leadership, and health and well-being? If, if you can bring some of that in, it typically starts to weave into a fabric of a, a place that people want to be. He's he's you know, coined to that, the irresistible organization. So that's something- But how do you we, do that with a gig worker? That's that's a lot harder, right? If, if if you work for my company, if you work for Vita Living and and you're employed and you have all our benefits, but the gig thing gets a little different, right? Is that what you're referring to gig workers? So someone who is doing the Uber driver and skip the dishes and these types of things, like how do you, how do you cross over? And like, what are some, what's the first step in that? Because I think- most still see that as, hey, you know, we're hands off, even though you're representing our brand as Uber, um, you know, you're accountable for these things and that's it. I don't know if they're incorporated into the company culture today. I, th I feel like it's a, it's a messy opportunity. Right. I, I think you're right. I think there is a real opportunity. Um, and your Uber Lyft example is a good one. How do you create community among those workers? And 
Um, what we are really thinking about is inclusion, connectivity among people, creating opportunities for them to engage with each other, um, talk with us and have us listen to what's meaningful. And then we're helping translate that to our clients. So RGP works at a little bit different intersection with gig-oriented professionals, meaning we employ them. Uh, so they are our W-2 employers. However, uh, these consultants get to opt in to the opportunities that we offer them. So that's oh, that, that flexibility around um, kind of that gig orientation comes in. And so- but Sorry, I just want to- Sorry, Katie, just quickly opt into, I'm going to think when I, when you say that, I think of, okay, you have these neat company things that I can opt into. There's this learning development thing. There's these different things, but I can't opt into your culture. That's got to be, I need to be accountable for that. How do you go the other way with like our values are X and, or, you know? Sure. Sure. So we have a pretty distinct culture that says we're a very human first culture. We want to listen to our people. What's important to them. I'll give you an example. One of the things that's important to the, the type of employee that RGP is recruiting is professional development. So making sure we're consistently investing in the expansion of their skill set, upskilling, reskilling, et cetera. So we've got a strong program around that. That attracts a lot of the talent that we're looking for here. Once here and people are engaging in that, um, where they opt in additionally is that each time there's an opportunity for them to go and serve a client, they are leaning into that opportunity. They can say, that's not the engagement I want to work on, or it is. So it's almost like a gig orientation within the company. Right. Right. Yeah. Got it. No, I understand. So, so yeah, because you want to ensure an alignment anyway. And, and, you know, I know we're going to talk about DNA traits. Cause I, I mean, I feel like that's a protective mechanism, even though it's also can be quite subjective, not objective. And, you know, when I had our guard company, we didn't, we, I mean, I guess in some form we had gig workers, we would hire 380 staff to do security for a Rolling Stones show. And then they were done It's a 12 hour shift, you know, or a concert festival or right across the country, you know, and what we would try to do is, I think this is, you know, potentially what you're talking about on DNA traits, we would say, what is the key DNA trait that we're looking for? And we would start with the outcome in mind. And, and in this case, the outcome was great customer service. So if you were work two hours or 24 hours uh, or 40 hours a week, you needed, we want to provide great customer service to our customers. And so the DNA trait that we were looking for was empathy. And so we actually started our job application to do our best to screen for empathy. And if you weren't empathetic, you scored low, it was over because you just didn't hit the metrics. Is that what you guys are doing on the DNA side? Walk me through that. Sure, great question. So we are, we're really starting with the end in mind and we think about it this way. There's two primary constituents that we want to make sure we're serving. Our clients, the people that engage us to um, serve as a conduit to the right talent to drive their change and transformation and the consultants who are performing that work. And so um, when, for us, that, that's kind of the starting place. And I think similar to the example you just used, empathy is a big piece of that. Um, other values, right? Integrity really is a, a client service orientation or service orientation um, to make sure that we're helping clients drive change, to make sure we're helping those consultants build skill sets um, to do meaningful work. So it really starts at the center of that, of, of you know, making sure we're making that match. 
Um, but if you break that down, so it's stay on integrity, how would you screen for integrity? How would you say, okay, Ron, we're going to, that's critically important. Let's make sure you have integrity. What are some of the strategies around that? Sure. So one thing that we talk about a lot when we're interviewing talent is, you know, tell me about a time when you've been serving a client. So many times you're working in the third party capacity and you understand what the client's objectives are, but you may discover something um, as you're doing that work that is it's not going to be in keeping with what the client wants to hear. It's going to be difficult news to deliver, um, and but it's the right thing to do for the client. You know, the right thing is to share what you found, be very forthright in that, and help them start solutioning that problem. Um, so asking questions like that to understand if somebody um, has the fortitude to um, first and foremost share what they're uncovering, share how they can best serve this client, even when that may be a departure from what the client's expecting. So you go back to a story, but you know, it's funny, and I've probably close to rudely interrupted people in interviews, because I'll ask questions like that, similar, tell me a time, right? Which just means tell me, your, what we're really saying is, tell me your experience with, mm-hmm. tell me a time. Mm-hmm. But sometimes people answer that question with, well, typically what I would do, Katie, is I would do this. And I said, well, well, great, but can you tell me a story of something you actually did? Do you guys do the same thing? Is that kosher or do you, you know? We do, we do. And I think what I found is you have to have a little bit of latitude that if they haven't had that exact experience, generally you can find one where somebody has had to do something difficult because it was the right thing to, to do, to bring forward full disclosure or to really serve that client even when it meant delivering difficult news, you know, there is a way to understand how somebody's applied integrity or values in a situation, even if the situation differs than the specific one you're asking about. Well, you, you know, it, it's a good point. And I, I think um, during the interview process, I'll tell you one a bit of an aha moment as we dug at DNA traits and, and do today. So, and our values, you know, um, continuous improvement is critically important um, and change. Um, so let me go to change because that is, we change so quickly as a company, you know, we, we our kind of in-house line is that, you know, the old line is if something's not broken, don't break it. We say if it's, if it's not broken, break it, put it back together better than you found it. And so we really want change all the time. But we found that depending on the individual, where they came from, from the organization, we would ask that question, tell me a, a time you, you, you led change or followed change. And then it, it, and people struggled, like because of, depending on the team leader company, in some cases, they wouldn't even have the autonomy to make change. And there wasn't much change. And so we actually started, so our questioning starts there, but then we go really quickly. And, and I think in some cases, we even move that to the side, to their personal life because they have the autonomy to do that in their personal life. And so if they haven't driven any personal change, so now we'll ask like, hey, Katie, what was the last change you made during the pandemic? Any big life changes? What have you done? Because I feel like our experience tells us if someone is doing that personally, then we're in good shape. They can apply that even though, unfortunately, I think we've made the mistake of labeling someone or making an assumption because of what they could or couldn't do in their last job. Have you found that? Or do you go from personal to to professional as you sure. for DNA traits. We most definitely do. And I, I agree with your premise that those things are transferable. Um, you're really talking about 
a skill set or an orientation or a disposition to practice something in one area of your life, which you can in another, right? So we certainly do. Yeah. And I think that I think it helps us uncover when you talk about what's important to the DNA of culture or to values. Um, I think it's okay to have examples from different areas. It is. And you're looking for the result is that you liked change. You liked change. You enjoyed change. And so I feel like we had Ashley Goodall, uh, who was Marcus Buckingham's co-author uh, with Nine Lives. And we had him on the podcast and he was, I mean, I can't remember um, the amount of times, but he was like, you just ask again and again and again. It reminded me of like, you know, you see on TV, these police interviews for the, you know, so Katie, you're charged with murder. It's like, so tell me again, how you walked through the building and they're just looking for any inconsistencies. I feel like that's what Ashley was talking about. Is that a strategy you guys do? Or is it, no, three is good. Or is there, is there, is he, you know, is there any guidance to that? Hey, we want to hear about that specific thing five times or not. I think it's important to under, to have enough validation to, to know that, um, this skill set, this competency, this orientation is really there. But I wouldn't go so far as to say maybe, you know, X number of times or to go back again and again. I think it's for us, it tends to really be about is this a match? Is this important to you? Do you have this skill set? And even sometimes, is there propensity to learn? You know, I think it's important, particularly as, as tight as the talent market is right now and the war for talent, it's going to be important to think about potential too. So experience matters and that's important. And I certainly agree with the notion that applying that in one area of your life can be transferable to another. But I think also important is, you know, what are you interested in? And give me some examples where you have learned or expanded your skill set and, and what's that appetite look like? And so when you talk about agile talent, are you referring to someone because the world's changing so quickly? So someone who can agile shift through change or what does that mean to you, agile talent? Yeah, Um, typically when I refer to agile talent, it really means um, what some people might call uh, supplemental to their workforce. So it could be a contingent part of the workforce. It could be talent on demand, expertise on demand. It's really, how do you take, how do you match talent regardless of the the exact capacity they're working in, a full-time equivalent, a full-time employee, a third-party consultant, how do you bring talent in kind of that expertise on demand at the moment that you need it? Right. Yeah. Interesting. And so how are you guys doing that? Where's the bench of talent coming from? Because at the moment you need it, right? And so that means that we don't need it today, but we might need some tomorrow. Where do you build that? Yeah. Um, Well, for us, we start with the end in mind of what our clients need. So we're talking to our clients often. We're looking at a lot of um, labor trends and future of work trends to understand what's um, being forecast in terms of skills and competency and expertise. And we're matching our workforce to that. So again, RGP is bringing consultants in and an employment capacity with RGP and then matching that talent agilely to the needs of our clients. Got it. Yeah. Really interesting. Katie, anything else that we haven't discussed that you think would be important for the listeners in this topic today that that's hot off the press for you or things you guys are thinking about or strategies you're implementing that that you think would be beneficial to listeners? Sure. I think um, part of it may just be uh, thinking about, you know, what's important to labor right now, just given the current state of the market. 
And I think in light of this great resignation that's being talked about everywhere, it's, yeah. it's interesting to, to, for me anyway, to see some of the research about who's really driving um, that phenomenon. And there's some new research coming out on that, which is interesting. And most importantly, what are some of the retention drivers for people as it relates to culture? And one of the things that I've recently seen is that um, the, the three big retention drivers tend to be a sense of purpose in work, a human first culture, and the ability to grow and develop, opportunities to grow and develop are far and above three of the biggest drivers for retention over um, compensation and other factors that, that are the pieces that are getting emphasized most heavily in headlines. Right, right. It's kind of interesting, interesting to think about. Okay, look, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed this discussion. I've learned uh, a bunch. I've got two pages of notes, so thank you very much. And um, yeah, I hope we see you again on the show. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Ron. I'm very excited to share our Scaling Culture Masterclass is coming out this December. This is the full cycle playbook that Ron wished he had 15 years ago. The masterclass will cover best practices you can implement immediately. Each step in the framework is tangible, actionable, and has relatable stories, exercises, and leadership tips. Some right from these very podcast interviews. To join the waiting list, please go to scalingculture.org. For more information about Katie, please connect with her on LinkedIn. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back next episode with another incredible guest.